Hey everybody, Jimmy Smith. On today's Unlocking the Cage podcast, I sit down with Bellator flyweight champ Liz Carmouche about her run in Bellator and coming out in the UFC in honor of Pride Month. Also, extreme couture coach Eric Nixick and I discuss UFC Vegas 57. He breaks down the card also on some other fights this weekend, including Bellator and PFL. She is the Bellator flyweight champion and in celebration of Pride Month, of which there is another week left to go, the first openly gay fighter in UFC history, Liz Carmouche. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, no problem at all. No problem at all. So great to have you. So, what I want to ask you first, um, as I said, we got a week left in Pride Month. I want to ask you about the decision to be an openly gay fighter in the UFC. Was it a decision or was it I'm living my life and I'm not hiding anything from anyone? I'm very curious about that. Uh, it was a little bit of both. Uh, yeah. I had just got out of the Marine Corps when I decided to pursue my MMA career. Uh, it was during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and I knew – all the fear that I experienced when I was there, trying to understand myself and coming into my own. And I just knew it wasn't a closet I wanted to live in anymore. I wasn't looking to like throw anybody's face, but for me, it was a point of pride for myself and confidence to wear a rainbow mouthpiece. And just to let my coaches know, because I'd never told anybody openly like, hey, I'm gay, by the way. Um, and just let my coaches know, just because I wanted us to all be on the same page, never having to be uncomfortable or unwelcomed. And uh, just knew that it wasn't something I was going to hide anymore. So uh, how did it feel when you talk about, I in contrast to the military experience, did you feel while you were in the military that, that you were hiding, that it was, it, was, it was something you had to live with and carry? Absolutely, yeah. During Don't Ask, Don't Tell, yeah. um, most anybody I knew that was a homosexual was very afraid of getting kicked out, getting um, dishonorably discharged within within then means when you get out that you can't get a job. Um, so yeah. that was a big fear. And I know at, at one point uh, there was a little bit of a witch hunt trying to find anybody that was gay and report them so they could get kicked out. So it was definitely something I was, uh, I was scared of the entire time it was in. Do you feel uh, in, in those days, and obviously I'm, I'm, I'm older than you are. I remember, you know, the don't ask, don't tell days. And, and <laughs> people don't understand that when you fill out paper, when you buy a firearm in the United States, have you ever been arrested or dishonorably discharged? It's, it's like the same question. People don't understand. Like when you apply for things, have you ever been arrested or dishonorably discharged from the military? It's almost the same thing. Do people not understand all the time the consequences of that? No, not at all. Yeah. I, I really don't think yeah. they do. Um, and you're right. Like, for you to say you're dishonorably discharged, they don't ask you what the circumstances were for being dishonorably discharged. It, it's basically the same thing as having a felony. That's all they hear. There's no way that you can you can fix that and make it right. Um, and it's for something so silly that it just didn't make sense. And and people really don't get that. When I tell people, they're like, oh, I didn't realize it was that extreme. Like, oh, yeah, that would be the difference between me holding jobs and being able to live a regular life just based on my sexuality and it's not really a fair choice have you noticed i'm speaking of course to liz carmouche not only is she built or flyweight champion we are celebrating pride month she's the first openly gay fighter in ufc history um when you talk about w wanting to be open with your coaches wanting to be open with the people around you so once again we're all on the same page and you're not blindsided what did that feeling feel like when you're actually able to say that uh, it was it was really amusing. My my I was very fortunate that most of the people that I've come across don't care. The only thing they care about is your work ethic, 
who you are as a teammate and who you are as a person. Your uh, sexual choices make absolutely no difference to them whatsoever. So as I'm there with my coach and he's joking around, he knew and he was just trying to get me to feel comfortable enough to tell him without like forcing my hand. But he's like, hey, do you think that she's cute? And I was like, uh, and just kept doing my sprints and moving on. And he's like, well, what about, what do you think about her? And I was like, uh, I just keep sprinting because I'd never been put in that scenario before. And I was like, okay, here's my chance. I can tell him. And I was like, hey, I have to tell you something. I'm gay. And he's like, yeah, no kidding. Why do you think I kept asking those questions? And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> right, you know. He's like, I don't it, care. <laughs> it's, it's so funny, man. People have this idea about, Martial arts and in in jujitsu or whatever that's super serious, dude. We break balls all the time. It's just it's just you know what I mean. Like like it's so funny. Like as you as you say, like no. I, number one, I know. Number two, yeah, it's why I'm you know essentially busting balls over all the time. Like that's it's part of training. You do all <laughs> kinds of things to make training like more lighthearted, right? You do it's so suffering and it's so monotonous and it's so difficult that coaches do stuff to like break it up, and a lot of it's breaking balls. Am I wrong? No, not at all. I mean, we're constantly giving her, her, each other a hard time. We're always there for each other. We have each other's backs. We put in an extra work to prepare each other. But we're also going to be the, the biggest pains in the butts, giving each other a hard time about what outfit they wore into practice, what, what the choices they made, their weekends, everything. Yeah, it's all about busting each other's balls when you come in there. <laughs> <laughs> so have you noticed at all? Um, like I said, don't ask, don't tell. It was a while ago. I remember when I was in high school in California, they passed something I think it was called uh, Title Eight that defined marriages between a man and a woman. And this is like 1994 or something. So, I mean, a while ago, but not that long ago. Um, have you noticed a difference socially or in the the MMA sphere where Amanda Nunes is openly gay and she's in she's in the, the the octagon with her wife and all this stuff and they're taking pictures and and have you noticed a difference in the culture since you started in MMA at all? I've noticed a huge, huge difference. Uh, I can remember being the only gay person on my team, male or female. Um, and then not soon after, we had uh, a trans fighter as well who felt comfortable enough to come out and express that he was trans. Um, and that was completely different than anything I experienced. And then friends, too, coming in, telling me they're interested in getting into MMA. And because I was able to come out and they're in the military, they can now come out, too. And I was like, whoa, you can't. Oh, wait, you can do that. Oh, my God. Um but seeing the difference in the confidence that people have and being able to tell others, seeing, like you said, Amanda Nunez in the middle of the cage with her daughter and her wife. If that had been 15 years ago, you would have never seen that. And now you see teams with trans fighters and homosexual fighters and people coming out with pride flags and pride mouthpieces and shirts. It's a completely different culture of acceptance that allows anybody to just be comfortable with who they are. Uh, speaking of Liz Carmouche, she's the Bellator flyweight champion, also the first openly gay fighter in UFC history. Um, of course, we're celebrating Pride Month. There's a week left to go. Um, one of the things, and, and I want to kind of bounce this off your head, man. One of, one of the things that I have trouble kind of dealing with a little bit in just being in the world I'm in. I'm from Long Beach, California. I don't know if you know where that is. It's uh, You're in San Diego, so you should have some idea, right? Um, Long yes. Beach is, 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 is a really gay town. It just is. A great, great pride parade. It's a really, really gay town. That's where I live from 9 to 19. And people kind of look at me and, and, and the, the environment I'm in and the, the people I'm around, they kind of assume I'm homophobic and I'm not. And it's, like, so weird to me. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Just because I look like a meathead, but I'm not. You know get what I'm saying? And it's like 
I, I feel like that's such a bad reflection on the sport that people would look at me, I'm an MMA, and they assume that I'm going to be homophobic, and I'm not. And it's one of the weirdest things that I have to deal with all the time, Liz, like all the time, and it sucks. Yeah, it's like, like you have to prove like, yourself yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no, I'm from – it's funny because in California, as soon as I go, like, no, I'm from Long Beach, you're like, oh, okay. And then they're totally friendly. I'm like, no, it's not – it's like – it's almost like saying you're from San Francisco or the Castro. You're like, oh, okay, all right, fine. Yeah, all right, great. But it's weird, you know, and that, that contrast in the culture is weird, right? It's really yeah. difficult the way people receive yeah, even you. even one and, of and, the – yeah. Even MMA fighter uh, I met, like you said, like a meathead. If you look at him, yeah. there's nothing about him that what people think is the stereotypes of what a gay man should look like. He he doesn't reflect any of that. He comes yeah. in, he's in a suit that he's like busting through. He's carries himself in the way that he's articulate. His voice doesn't sound feminine. And he's like, no, I like men. And like, no, but like, like. You want to look like a big man, like no, I like men. No, I'm gay. <laughs> nobody I'm would gay. ever believe him. And he's like, "What do I have to? <laughs> what do I have to do to show you guys? I have to prove that I'm gay? Like, come on." <laughs> oh my, yeah, it and happens the all the time. One of my friends, yeah, one of my friends. It's the same thing. He's same, same type of guy. And people are like, "Wait, you're not opposed to look at that, that gay guy?" And he's like, "So what?" Yeah. He's like, "My brother's gay. I don't care." It, yeah. it has no reflection on our lives. Why do you care? And it is. It's kind of hard that if you don't fit the bill for what people expect, you're put into a box, and yeah. that's the description you're supposed to hold. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's it, it's really true. It's something I've, I've had to run into a lot. Let me transition just a little bit to your success in Bellator. There's a big Bellator card on tonight at nine o'clock. You are now, of course, Bellator flyweight champion, a win over Juliana Vasquez, previously undefeated. Uh, tell me about your experiences. Uh, in the promotion, all the success you've had, you've won four in a row there. What's it been like there? You know, it's been great. I was looking to, to try and transfer over from the UFC to Bellator even before the cut happened. Um, there was just stuff that I was seeing with quartering Lima and seeing how the organization treated her, my familiarity with the, the staff that was working there. So I was like, man, it just seems like a the grass is much greener on the other side, and, and I'd like to be there. But at the time, they said, hey, we can't really accommodate you. And then everything just fell right into place, and I was able to make that transition to Bellator. And it's been great. The organization is really great. They really look out for their fighters and trying to offer them as much financial compensation as they can possibly do to make sure that people can make a lifestyle and a living out of this. And I've been set, set up with good opponents that challenge me and push me and been fortunate enough that I was able to swap over to a different fight team and that's really been my success in Bellator, is finally making that transition to be a full-time fighter with the fight team I'm at now. Um, I had Josh Thompson on yesterday to talk about this card that's happening tonight, and we were talking about Gegard Mousasi, who is, I think, one of the most underrated fighters of all time. Not just now, not just yeah. middleweight. Gegard is so good. It's been so good for so long. And Josh was like, yeah, the only problem he's ever had in his career is kind of, you know, he doesn't always seem focused in every fight. And since Bellator made him a big offer and really took care of him, he's been crushing everybody. And Josh kind of laughed and went, yeah, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't have to worry about your paycheck. Is it, it kind of that thing for you where it's almost like a refocusing based on, oh, wow, I, I can make a living here. It's, it's easier. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I would say that definitely helps for sure. Um, but if anything, that puts a lot more of um, – an expectation on myself, like I have to live up to an increase in a paycheck and be able to support this and show them that I deserve to be paid this way. So if anything, it, it just puts more fire underneath me. 
but it, it was really the transition with the fight team. Um, I had been splitting mm. my time with the fight team, and it was kind of like when you have two coaches that are speaking two different languages and you're trying to concentrate, and it just wasn't cohesive for what I needed. And when I finally was going into Bellator, I'm like, I need to make this change. Uh, the benefits that I've seen in working with this fight team has helped me, but me being on that on that fence isn't helping me. I, I just need to make the decision. So I swapped over to that fight team, and that's really, for me, what made the difference is not having to translate two different languages and just stick with one. Now, uh, I would like to ask you about that. Uh, speaking to Liz Carmouche, Bellator flyweight champion, um, the whole kind of... Obviously, TJ Dillashaw now going to be fighting for the Bantamweight title, hopefully soon against Aljamain Sterling. The criticism he went through, leaving Team Alpha Male, he stuck with uh, Bang Ludwig, and he was seen as like a backstabber. And I went, what is this, 1999? Like, like you're a traitor for leaving teams? <laughs> like, uh, you know, you have you go back far enough to remember when that was kind of, I don't know if you go back to remember when it was a real thing, but still kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. People do, it's, yeah. So so talk about that a little bit, that idea of, oh, you're a clayance, you're a trader when you switch teams, and you're like, dude, I'm a professional, I got to go what's best for me. What's your balance on that? Yeah, you know, I, I go back and forth on that. I know that my loyalty to the coaches that helped me out when I had nothing um, blinded me to having to make the advancements I needed in my career. I wasn't being challenged. Mm. I wasn't being pushed. But I wanted to be loyalty because when I had nothing and I was struggling to get by, these are the coaches like, we're not asking anything of you except to just show up and give everything you have. You don't have to financially compensate us. Just put in the work. And so I kept sticking with them like, because it's disloyal if I go elsewhere. And I've been told that. And then I get missed messages from one of my coaches like, no, you need to be challenged. Go to a different gym. And then I go elsewhere and he's like, how can you do that? You're so disloyal. I'm like, but you told me to go elsewhere. <laughs> I'm so yeah. confused. So I definitely lived in that, that time frame where we're told, like, if you go to a different gym, you are dishonoring everyone amongst you that has been by your side. Um, but ultimately, for me to succeed, you have to do what's best for you. And, and MMA is a selfish sport. There's only one person that walks into that cage yeah. and puts their life on the line and puts their body in harm's way. And you have to do what's best for that one person. And as difficult as that is, as long as you do so, I think, with respect, then you're not truly being disloyal. Now, if you're going to a different gym and you're talking crap on everybody that helps you, yeah, that's totally messed up. But you can, I think you can certainly cross-train with other gyms and do so honorably. So before I let you go, I have two questions. One professional, one personal. Let's start with the professional. <laughs> what is next for you as Bellator champion? What's on the horizon? What are you looking forward to? I'm really looking forward to a few things. One, I want to convince Bellator to do two things. I want them to open up a 135, the bantamweight division in Bellator, because we haven't seen that yet. I'd love to mm -hmm. do like what Amanda Nunez has done and hold the belt in two different weight classes and also give some women opportunities that haven't been uh, able to fight because of the two variances in weight classes. I'd also like Bellator to take a fight, fight card out to Japan so I could go home and visit and try and open up that market and see if we can't get some new fans in. Uh, first off, both of those are awesome. Uh, I've called fights in Japan. It is great. There's nothing like fighting in front of that crowd. It is absolutely awesome. Um, when I introduced you today, two things. I said Bellator flyweight champion, and I said first openly gay fighter in UFC history. When your career is long gone, and you're done fighting, you're teaching, doing whatever you need to do, that will stick around forever, that you were the first person to do it. What does that mean to you? Uh, it, it means so much to me. Uh, because like I said, when I was in, it was in during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I never thought I was 
ever going to openly come out ever. I thought I'd always be in the closet based on my experiences. And then to turn around and not only to come out openly and to have acceptance, to be able to help mentor other people and be um, a face for others to come out of the dark and out of the shadows for themselves, um, it means the world to me. And then to do so in a historical way, I, I never would have thought that would have happened. So it's just kind of for me something I'll always remember that stands out as being someone that I needed that wasn't there for me. Liz, you're awesome. Thank you so much for all you've done and giving us your time. Liz Carmouche, Bellator flyweight champion. Happy Pride Month. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Busted Open is your daily home for all things pro wrestling. Join Dave LaGreca, WWE Hall of Famers, Bully Ray and Mark Henry, and hardcore wrestling legend Tommy Dreamer. Dave LaGreca here. From WWE to AEW, Impact, New Japan, Ring of Honor, and more, we talk it all. Whether you grew up watching Ric Flair or Stone Cold Steve Austin, Busted Open is your place for pro wrestling. Busted Open, Mondays through Saturdays at 9 a.m. East on Fight Nation, Sirius XM Channel 156. Eric Nixick from Extreme Couture. We're going to talk all about the UFC this weekend. Maybe get some thoughts on some Bellator fights and some other stuff. Eric, great to have you with us, bud. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having me back, man. Anytime, man. Anytime. So let's start out. Um, let's talk about the UFC. Uh, so you can versus Gamrot. When you're looking at two guys, both Eastern European, both uh, great grapplers, both commit to their punches, uh, both very experienced, 20-1 and one for Gamrat, 18-2 and two for Armin Soyuken. They've both been experienced at the, the elite level. What are the little tiny differences? You look, whenever you're coaching a guy, same height, same size, similar styles, what are the little tiny differences you look for in a fight like this? Yeah, man. I mean, it's like that Spider-Man meme where like kind of all point at each other. Yeah. And these guys are like <laughs> mirror images of one another. And you can really, you know, on the exterior, they look very, very similar. But there are some there's so, there's some underlining differences that I think with especially with Gamrot striking. Um, he has a fluidity between both stances and where I feel like Armand is a little bit just more stays that orthodox stance unless it maybe has a roll through. But Gamrot, I feel like has a little bit more. um uh, comfortability out of both stances. And I think that's going to play a little bit more uh, into this fight because we know the one loss that Armand has is versus a Southpaw in Islam. So if I'm breaking this fight down, if I'm the Gamrock camp, I want to look and see if there's any things that I saw out of the Islam fight that might've stood out to me more in that Southpaw striking position. So I, and, and I think that also is going to play a little bit into the wrestling side of things with Gamrock's not really a stationary target. And it's going to be hard to find that single leg if you're actually moving in and out of stances. So the stance to me, I think, is going to be something we're going to see in this fight. One tiny difference here, and you know, it may not be tiny, it may be really significant. Back in the day, and uh, Eric, we're both back in the day kind of guys, <laughs> yeah. um, you, you used to have maybe 15, 20 fights before you got into the UFC, right? There weren't a lot of UFCs, they didn't fight that often, you had to have a lot of fights. So a lot of guys coming into the UFC were champs somewhere else. So they had championship rounds. They had been in five rounders. They were local champions, a king of the cage, whatever, you know, gladiator challenge. And in this case, that's a big difference between these two guys. Gamrat, a KSW champ, very good secondary organization. He's been through five rounders. He's been 25 minutes twice. He's been to the fourth round another time. So you can has never been past the third round. Um, getting somebody ready, you as a coach at Extreme Couture, getting somebody ready for a five rounder, you can simulate it in the, in the gym. How close can you really get? 
you know, and that's a great point. And I think that's something for me, like I look at a lot of those unknowns, like we had a kid who was four and oh, all first round finishes. But for me as a coach, I still get worried in the fact of like, what do we have when it gets into the deeper rounds? So you're right. It's very hard to emulate what it's a good problem to have, right? Like you got to finish it on your hand. But when you start to get in the upper, upper echelon of this weight division, especially when you're trying to move up the rankings, it's going to be a lot more difficult to finish these guys. So where do you start to understand how to schedule your breaks? When you have that chaotic round, like when you watch Favola and, and Armand in that, the first round, these guys are going after it. We also know Armand had a, had a hard time making that weight cut. That could have been something completely different. But we know this man cuts a lot of weight. So you start compiling all those things that you're talking about, Jimmy, and you start putting into the championship rounds four and five. I think that is a very good question of the unknown of what you have with Armand. So how do you train it? Well, I think a lot of times when you have those five-round fights and you're training in the training room, you want to get a fresh body in on you every round. Maybe your first three rounds, you work with the same guys, so you make the adjustments. Rounds four and five, it's always nice to have a fresh body in because that pace is going to be a lot different. How do you control those the, the, the nerves of that four and fifth round? How do you convince somebody who hasn't been there that they can do it, that it's not that different, that it's, that it's a mental thing? Is that a big challenge as a coach? It can be, and I think it's almost like that 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 four minute mile mentality. Once that four minute mile is broken by Benjamin Banniger, you know, it's like, oh, everybody yep. else can do it too, right? But it's like you have to live it to experience, to understand it, to know. And I, I think that comes with your preparation and your training. But you're absolutely right. I think you, with the mental side of things, as a coach, you're going to have to deliver the right things in the corner, um, slowing the process down, make sure they understand how and when to schedule their breaks. Don't go redline the first three rounds because four and five is going to look a lot different. We saw that with Aljamain and Peter Yon the first time around, right? We had to understand where to schedule our breaks a lot better. And when, once Aljamain had that experience and going that five, five rounds with Peter Yon, he was able to go back to the drawing board and, and adjust to those things. So I think you really have to be in there for the first time to really understand what you're dealing with. Uh, speaking of course, to Eric Nixick from extreme couture about this weekend's fights. Got to ask you about this co-main. Neil Magny, Shavkat Rachmanov, Rachmanov 15-0, 15 finishes, 8 knockouts, 7 submissions. Guy doesn't get paid by the hour, and he knows it. Neil Magny, <laughs> extremely experienced, 26-8. and eight. This is one of those. Now, I'm not – Neil Magny's not your guy. You don't manage him in any way. Have you ever told a fighter who was like, I'll fight anybody, anytime, like, dude, don't fight this guy yet? Have you? How much influence do you have? How much? How much of the, your ear do you have as a coach of going? Don't fight this guy yet. Just I know. I know you say anybody. I'm not this guy. Have you ever had that as a coach? Not naming any names here. Yeah, I've had a couple of them before, and the fight didn't come to <laughs> fruition. But I'll say it because it didn't happen. But I sat down with Kevin Lee on his on his welterweight, you know, comeback welterweight fight. And uh, yeah. the one name I wrote down, we do not fight is Sean Brady. I go, we're not fighting this guy right now. It's a bad Beast. matchup, especially you're coming off a knee injury. And he, yes. he comes back to the office a week later. Hey, sign to fight Sean Brady. I go, why would you ask me <laughs> who shouldn't, shouldn't <laughs> fight him? <laughs> you know? That is awesome, up, man. Yeah, like, God damn it, Kevin. I go, why'd you do that? Because 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 I wanted to prove you wrong. That's just Kevin's mentality, you know? But, um, yeah, it, at the end of the day, I think you, you really have to be honest with your fighter in, in certain regards. But... In this matchup, you know, we, we have Neil Magny, this veteran who's been around the sport for a long time. And we have Rachmanov, who's, who's arguably the next prospect next to Kamzat in this division. What are we dealing with here? And Rachmanov's a guy who's only seen round three, I think, one time in his career. Yeah, four years Round ago. three. 
everything's been finishes, man. So um, again, we kind of talked about that earlier was what do you have in those deeper rounds? So I think if you're Neil Magny in his camp, how do you use your fight IQ and your situational awareness to drag this fight into a little bit of deeper, maybe get Rob Otto to see a little bit of adversity and see what he has maybe in round three. And maybe you have something there if you're Neil Magny, but man, this guy's an absolute killer, man. I'm looking forward to seeing this fight. Now, on the other side, if you're Shavkat Rachmanov's corner, Neil Magny is goofy. That's the best way to describe it. He's like 6'3". He's angler. He's, he's angly. He's really strange in the way he moves. He's, you know, he goes takedown a lot. He's very good in the clinch. A, a veteran guy with a real chin. How do you get somebody ready to face the frustrations of Neil Magny? Going, hey, you may not be able to get, hit this guy in the chin for the first three rounds. Just... Settle down. How do you do that against a when, when, when your guy's such a finisher like Rachmanov? Yeah, that's a great point, Jimmy. And I think you have to slow him down and collect your data, get your reads. What is you? I think you're going to find out pretty early on what Neil Magny's game plan is going to be if you're the Rachmanov side. What are they looking to do? I would I would guess that Magny's going to try to get in the clinch game quite a bit because that's one of his best attributes, right? Slow that pace down, make it grimy, stay heavy on the head work your clinch game. So I think you might see what the, the cards are for the Magni camp pretty early. And I think it's important for Rachmanov to just to stay patient, collect his data, see what he sees on the outside, and then start picking up on his reads and see if those reads are true. That's where I think this guy is very good is his, is his creativity and what he gets off of his reads. Uh, speaking, uh, transitioning a little bit to your fighter, Chris Curtis, of course, taking on Hadolfo Vieira. I wonder what Vieira is going to try and do. Oh, yeah, Weird, take it right? out of submission. <laughs> That's his thing. Uh, it was the camp basically sprawling and brawling? Tell me about the, 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 the mentality in the camp leading this fight. We're taking on a specialist, in a sense, in Vieira. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Jimmy, now you and I have talked about this in the past. I think we always try to think about the 80-20. 80% of our camp is going to dictate what we're going to do in our fight and then 20% of what Hadolfo Rivera is going to do. But there's a lot of blend there. And what I mean by that is I think there's layers to defending the takedowns. And that's obviously placement of punches is one negation of the takedown framing, redirecting all of those things. And then your bottom layer is like, okay, now we're in that, like, Oh shit, we're on the ground. What are we going to do as far as our technical get-ups, our uh, breaking the grips, things of that sort. Right. So first and foremost, I think being in the apex in a small cage distance management and understanding your, your whereabouts, your geography in the cage is really going to be the story in this fight for us. So um, you know, Chris had a great camp and we had Albert drive in camp with us at the same exact time. And now those two had a, uh, had a good time really getting after one another and it, and it really helped us a lot. So, um, it's a great style matchup. I think for both guys, classic boxer versus a grappler. Um, let's shift gears just a little bit. I'm speaking to Eric Nixick, coach at Extreme Couture, one of the best in the game. Bellator 282 is on uh, tonight, 9 o'clock at showtime. Gegard Mousasi versus Johnny Eblen, 49 wins, 7 losses, 2 draws. Is Gegard the most underrated fighter, one of the most all-time, not just active, I mean of all time, the guy has beaten everyone everywhere. What do you think of him and his style, man? I mean, you got to think he is, right? Like, this guy's, what, 12-1 and one in his last 13. He lost to Lovato. He lost to Uriah Hall kind of in a fluke. You know, you know not a fluke. He got hit. He got, he got clipped. But a fight that he was supposed to win. I think, I think for him, it's, it's more of his personality. 
He's not loud on the mic. He's not going to be this boisterous character that you're going to see. But his skill set that he backs it up from the feet to the floor, Jimmy, this guy is an absolute stud at the middleweight division. I think it's kind of a disservice because we're missing out on a real, really very good martial artist, and he just kind of flies under that radar. Uh, his opponent, Johnny Eblen, is 11-0, and obviously coming off a win over John Salter, very tough guy, won a unanimous decision there. But 11 fights... Your opponent has had that many fights, as you said, undefeated. I mean, the guy, I mean, an 11-fight win streak is nothing to, to Gegard Mousasi. How do you get a guy who is talented but comparatively inexperienced, how do you get them mentally ready to fight a guy like Gegard Mousasi who's seen everything? How do you do that mentally? I think the inexperience, maybe the 11-0, and, and, and is actually a good thing on the Eblin side because, you know, he actually came out and trained with us for a couple weeks, and he might not really understand – the level of Gegard Musasi and how good he is uh, across from him. And sometimes ignorance is bliss when it comes to that stuff, Jimmy. Maybe, the, you know, Johnny goes out there and just, I don't care who's in front of me. I'm going to go try to rocket this dude's head off, you know, and, and it is what it is. And he had that gunslinger mentality when he came over to the gym. And, and crazy enough, man, him and Sean Strickland hit it off. So you can kind of understand Eblin's uh, mentality in this game. And I think that's going to be important for him. Don't really look at the name across from you. Go out there and perform and do the best you can do with your capabilities. And uh, don't worry about that as Gegard Masasi. Uh, I want to talk a little bit from, from a coach's perspective. I talked about this a little bit with the, uh, the PFL season where they are not a particular, particular fight itself, but it's, it's sort of a tournament and it extends over a season. And as long as you're moving on to the next round, you're winning. And then later on, you worry about getting the finish. How do you manage somebody? I was talking to Sean O'Connell yesterday, who's a PFL play-by-play uh, -play announcer, and he said uh, Anthony Pettis told him I wasn't ready for the grind. I didn't realize, yeah. God, I'm fighting every two months. It's a season, a tournament like Bellator um, was back in the day. Um, how do you get a fighter ready for that that grind? Not just one fight, but a three, uh, you know, three fights in four months kind of season. How do you get somebody ready for that? Man, it was such a great experience for me in 2018 because I had Lance Palmer and I had Vinny Magalesh. And we're talking yeah. about two guys who competed in kind of tournament jiu-jitsu and the highest level of collegiate wrestling. So these guys were accustomed to kind of that tournament style and, you know, gearing back up and getting their gloves back on, you know, especially when we had the playoffs. But, you know, it, it, is, it is a marathon mentality that you have to have. Not only with that, Jimmy, you like you're really trying to focus on making sure you don't get some injury that's going to carry over throughout the entire the entire season because you can be out. And we've seen that with some of those guys. They have a great one, one fight, and they're out for the rest of the season. So um, I think injury management, training the right way, mixing up your training camps and not making it so like just mundane where it's the same thing over and over and over, right? So I think that to kind of keep the interest of the fighter is very important and keeping their keeping them engaged. So yeah, man, we navigated that 2018 season, and it was it was a, honestly it was a, one of the funnest years I've ever had because of the camaraderie that we got to build amongst the, the the four of us, the guys that were in the gym, you know. So we had a lot of fun with that. Gotta say two things, Eric. Number one, sure. best of luck this weekend to UFC. I know you have uh, a couple fighters on this weekend. Then next couple weeks, you got a few more to go, including our own Misha Tate. And also the fighters that make weight, man, enjoy. What is it? The, the French toast? Is that is that the deal? Is French that the toast. post French French toast post weigh in French meal? Toast. I <laughs> hope you enjoy. I hope it's all great, man. Thank you so much for giving us your time, man. My pleasure, Jimmy. Always good to talk to you, my man. Unlocking the cage with Jimmy Smith is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network. 
The executive producer is Michael Russo. The associate producer is Kelly Murphy. Sound design by Nuri Balin. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and SiriusXM Fight Nation Program Director, Marissa Rivas. SiriusXM Podcasts.